We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the Turrbal, Yagara, Jagara, Yugarapal and Kwandamuka peoples and their elders, past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded. Mutual, 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 this is the Mutual Broadcasting System. As radio gets called everything from gag to gadget, but fate is to make radio a power in a world of peace and war. And the show you are listening to today is Radio Versal. Today on the show we are going to be talking a lot about political morality and social choice. Musing on the philosophical content of some kind of a broader political economic critique. This is very much in the spirit of Radio Reversal. Good morning, Zed Heads. You are listening to Radio Reversal here on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is just on eight minutes past ten on this Thursday morning that was sunny when I came indoors, but I don't know if it's still sunny. Um, We are talking on the show today about... um, uh, well, a whole bunch of stuff. But before I jump into that, that track that you heard right at the top of the hour was a new-ish one from Mad Boots. That was Humble. Uh, we're going to be playing a lot of local new music this show, so please get in touch if you'd like to hear something in particular this week. You can text us 0420626733 or you can call us on 32521555. Uh, you can also get in touch on Facebook, facebook.com slash radioreversal, and we tweet at radioreversal. Um we are super stoked to be joined in the studio this week by Michelle Dang. Michelle, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Yay! Uh, and Shelley as well. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I think Shelley's mildly panicked because your headphones are not working. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's fine. I'll Everyone, just... can you hear us? <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to be we're going to be chatting with Michelle today. Michelle is as you've been on the show a couple of times before. I have. Um, yeah, in in person or uh, or via the like the magic of a pre-recorded interview. Um, Michelle's a a kind of what critical race and feminist theorist, writer, community worker, all the things. <laughs> I'd like to think of myself as a retiree. A retiree. <laughs> yes, I've retired from the uh, cis hetero patriarchy. Oh, hell yep, yes. I'm, I'm done with that. <laughs> ah, that is an excellent, like, short bio. <laughs> I love it. Um, so today on the show, we're going to be talking um, a lot about violence and about the kind of multiple and intersecting kinds of violence that exist in our social world. So there's a bit of a content warning on the show. We're, we're going to try and avoid describing specific instances of violence, but we will be talking about gender-based violence, about racial violence and state violence in the context of a broader conversation conversation about feminist organising, gender and um, the Me Too movement, which is our topic today. So if you feel like this isn't what you're in the mood for or if you're feeling like maybe you're not up for it right now, tune out for the next couple of hours. You can listen back to the show at a later point via the 4ZZZ On Demand page, uh, ondemand.4ZZZFM.org.au slash radio reversal. So, Shelley, what are we talking about on the show? (laughs) We're talking about Me Too movement and how white feminism has co-opted this movement started by a black woman, like they often do, um, and just how it's been like explained in a way that isn't intersectional, which mm. is not helpful at all. Mm. Yeah, totally. Michelle? Introductory thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think Me Too um, has kind of opened some discussions around sexual violence which has been really important mm. and I think as Shelley has said um, 
I think has raised a number of issues around um, the co-option mm. of the movement um, and the watering down mm. of particular issues, the depoliticization of sexual violence. Mm. Um, so I'm really um, keen to jump into some of these juicy topics. Mm, totally. Yeah. So we're going to be talking a little bit about some of these kind of um, maybe a kind of origin story of Me Too, but also maybe as a way of thinking about what the conditions of possibility were for Me Too to emerge as this kind of global movement. But um I also wanted to do a little bit of like context setting because I think that there's this really interesting thing about Me Too and maybe this is what you're speaking to, Shelley, in talking Mm -hmm. about the way that it fails often, the movement, the kind of hashtag movement fails to be intersectional in the sense that this is in in many ways this is a critique of the conditions of possibility for violence against particular bodies in the world. But the conversation has been kind of minimised, you know, like it's shrinking further and further. And so the the kind of context that I wanted to think about this week was this set of conversations that are happening in different ways in the the mainstream media in particular in Australia at the moment, um, in a bunch of different ways, but all of which kind of intersect with the devaluing of particular bodies. So I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. uh, these conversations that are coming out of the Australian cricket team's unsportsmanlike Uh. conduct. um, (laughs) In South Africa, and specifically this kind of outrage that they might have tampered with the sacred object that is the cricket ball. Um, but but the kind of focus on this meaning, this real absence of discussion about, like, the, the broader context of ball tampering, which is the practice of sledging, which, um, for those who are unfamiliar with cricket, is basically where you mutter manipulative psychological taunts to people mm. in the hope that it will make them worse at sporting. Um and what I think is really interesting about that is that a lot of the conversation about sledging um, that started just before the ball tampering like saga kicked off was about gender. So it was the the kind of response of male cricketers when their their wives, their property, was invoked as like part of the sledging. So um, there was a if you if you're in the mood for some kind of mind numbing toxic masculinity <laughs> in action, you can go and uh, have a read of this for yourself. But there's a bit of a taster that I read this week from for- former vice captain David Warner, explaining why he tried to beat up one of the other South African play one of the South African players, because he said I can't see anyone else making comments the way he made them, which were outright disgusting. Warner said, as I said, it's a thing you wouldn't say about any lady especially someone's wife or a player's mm. wife. Um, so this is then coupled with the kind of re-emergence in the media of Queensland in Queensland of um, Broncos player Matt Lodge, who has this kind of litany of terrifying violent offences that make him, frankly, pretty terrifying even to think about. Um, but a bunch of CCTV footage has been released from a home invasion that he was part of in New York. Um, but what's, what I think is really interesting, there's this really like frustrating undertone to this, uh, which is that uh, he's kind of welcomed back into the fold of NRL despite this mm. this kind of history of, of violence and abuse. Um, and there's there's something really interesting about that. And then I guess the, the other thing is that this has also been a week in which we've seen a bunch of CCTV footage released of intense police violence from Victoria um, and from committed by the Victorian police and the ensuing conversation that inevitably emerges about how it's just some bad apples in the police force, mm-hmm. that they've gone rogue, that it's individual officers behaving badly. 
But what I think is really interesting about this reporting and, and the thing that I think makes it really interesting in a conversation about Me Too is this question about, like, so a lot of the conversation about the Victorian police is centred on whether the police can investigate their own misconduct, which is at the moment what happens. So there's this kind of internal complaints process or internal review process. And that's, that's really interesting, right, because it's, like, rather than having a conversation about, like, why this violence, what, what it is that enables this violence to occur in the first place, we're just like, oh, well, it's kind of inevitable that it's going to happen because, remember, the bad apples, we just talked about that. Um, so, actually, really, all we can do is just figure out if the complaints pro- process can be, like, more effective. Um, and I think, like, I, I was rereading this, be- like, really important, I think, very... Um, dark but very important piece by Suvendrini Pereira and Joseph Polisi who are both these amazing academics and commentators who wrote a piece on a site that's called Researchers Against Pacific Black Sites which is excellent and their piece is called What the Law Saw and they're writing about the way in which these kind of representations of violence form part of this kind of what they would describe as a repertoire of gestural violence that underpins, enables and normalises institutionalised racism, misogyny, homophobia and ableism in Australia, suggesting that while these kind of recordings of violence serve to evidence, um, serve as evidence, they what they kind of end up proving is this is what they refer to as an object lesson to the settler colonial state's racialized and gendered subject. You are the property of the state. You are a priori suspect and criminal. You are beyond the purview of legal redress. You can be tortured and let die with impunity. Indeed, it is legally permissible to do so. That is why your trauma and death can be recorded. It is the law. So this is the this is the kind of like grim um, groundwork that I think these conversations about a movement like Me Too are happening in. Mm. Um, as well, of course, as um, the the kind of unfolding events down on the Gold Coast as the Stolen Wealth Games protesters um, are maintaining a pretty strong presence and resistance against the Commonwealth Games um, and are naturally coming into conflict with the police uh, at the same time. There's already been a couple of arrests. Um, and this, again, First Nations communities in Australia are still struggling against violent occupation. That's that's the kind of, um, the kind of yeah, the, the basis. That's maybe where we're at. Yeah, I think that's like a good overview of the context, but it's also thinking about why it has come to service at this point. Like talking about the cricket thing, um, people have been um, reading articles and talking about how it's Australia's greatest shame when they have like like mm. facilitated and enabled perpetrators of sexual violence to continue to mm. play and they don't think that it's shameful. Mm-mm. They don't get as much or, or any like reported coverage of that incident, mm. those incidents at all um, and it's like wow a ball is more valued than a person's mm. being mm. Uh, and sometimes I think they're rewarded you know mm. for mm. enacting acts of violence either sometimes their status gets um, raised because of um, uh, because there's news that they have enacted mm. violence so it it is interesting because it I think it falls into um, that idea of a particular type of masculinity mm. which is mm. celebrated in Australia. Totally, yeah. yeah and that there's actually well, you know, and when I dived into the the like pit that was reporting about <laughs> um, the cricket Sport. nonsense. Um, one of the things that was really interesting was that this this reporting on David Warner, who's like one of the people at the centre of this saga. Um, but who's also the person at the centre of this this like sledging um, kind of thing 
um, was it he he talked so much about like how his aggressiveness, like his you know this, this kind of aggression that he carries, is one of the things that makes him a like great cricket player, you know. Mm. And what he's really trying to trying to practice is just keeping it on the field. Mm. And there was something so like I mean, fascinating in a kind of like shivery, horrifying way. But about someone like reading this, this kind of like this is obviously an aspect of him and his his character that has been celebrated, that's mm. been reified historically, right? Um, and it's only in these moments where it kind of briefly like moves beyond the the purview of like the acceptable, or where we can't quite look away in the same the same way that where like that it becomes accept you know that it becomes necessary to discuss mm. it in some way mm. it's so it's so bizarre right yeah and how that's actually become a part of the game totally mm, yeah Oh, yeah, I could talk all day about the, like... Oh my. <laughs> but let's not mix politics with sport. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> right? The sacred ground. It cannot be besmirched. Um, if you ha- are having thoughts, big thoughts this morning, we'd love to hear them. You can get in touch with us. You can text us 0420-626-733 or you can call us while we're playing a track, 325 uh, or send us a message, message on Facebook facebook.com slash radio reversal or tweet at us although i don't think any of us in the studio are um, on twitter so (laughs) anyway um twitter (laughs) although that's not true yeah you can tweet at michelle dang who is our fabulous uh, guest in the studio with us today um she's on twitter at uh at dang underscore power that's right yes excellent i was frantically searching my (laughs) notes to find that one um yeah, I highly recommend that. I, my experience of Michelle is that she is someone who is very funny on the internet, also very a very compelling theorist. I don't use Twitter that often, so now I feel like I have to start using <laughs> yes, it. Yes, this is the accountability. <laughs> <laughs> There's all four of our listeners now know that you're on Twitter. <laughs> uh, yes, okay, so we are talking on the show today um, about Me Too, about the Me Too movement, having a bit of a think about some of the kind of origins of um, of this movement, but also about, um, I guess, where it's going or where it's kind of, where we're seeing it shift towards. Um, so who wants to kick, kick us off? What the hell is hashtag Me Too? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um so, I mean, my understanding is that, like, what we popularly understand as hashtag Me Too started as a hashtag campaign. So it was started as a sort of online mass movement designed to raise awareness, basically, in the way that hashtag campaigns mostly are. Um, and it kind of started after a bunch of allegations were made against um, a, a few people, but in particular, big shot Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Um, so the Me Too kind of moment, the hashtag moment, was kicked off by a Twitter post by Alyssa Milano, I believe, um, in which she asked her followers to copy and paste a status to highlight how prevalent sexual abuse against women was. So there's a few variations on the the, the form of the hashtag Me Too, but generally it, it read something like, if all of the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Um, please copy and paste. So the, the idea was to to kind of try and produce this mass mass movement to create a kind of archive of the um, the, the depth of um, the experience of this problem. Of course, uh, like a lot of things that get taken up by wealthy, often white women on the internet, that's not actually the origins of Me Too, which is, uh, as Shelley pointed out at the beginning. Um, do you want to talk a bit about where Me Too came from? Um, so I believe it was started by Tarana Burke, who's a black activist, in 1977. So 1997, than, I think. 1997. Yeah, so more yep. than 10 years ago. Yeah. 
Um, but then when a white woman popular popularizes it on Twitter, people maybe start taking it seriously, which is problematic because that's how. Well, that's we well we see this replicated in a lot of like social movement type mm. things. Um, yeah, so she started this because of um, the struggles of African American women um, and how they're often the receiving end of sexual and gendered violence but mm. their stories are like mm. never heard and um, even when they try to like access help they're gaslighted mm. ignored um, and their stories are trivialized mm. um, and people have been talking about this forever but no one's listened and people know like how many women experience mm. um, gendered violence it's the statistic is something like one out of three but it's probably mm. more than that because of like underreporting. so people know without having to do this whole me too thing but it's like an easy way for white mm. people to start talking about something that black people have been talking about forever mm. it's like a very surface level easy thing to do because they don't have to think about the structural mm. um significance mm. of gendered violence mm. yeah. yeah yeah when i started um uh, seeing the hashtag me too trend um like last year, I was quite surprised because, you know, the history of sexual violence is mm. um, one that is often silenced. Uh, I know that domestic violence has been um, kind of in the spotlight for the mm. last three, four years or so, yeah. particularly. But sexual violence continues to be one of those issues that um, is really hard to talk mm. about and taboo. And so when it started trending, I was kind of excited. I was like, mm. oh, this is great. It's um, getting a lot of attention. Um, people are starting, starting to believe women's stories or survivor stories. Um, but then I realised, you know, that awareness raising or uh, raising attention of an issue mm. isn't um, in and of itself always helpful mm. and sometimes can um, be really uh, problematic. And I want to say that, like, I'm really in support of creating platforms mm. um, where survivors can tell their stories in ways that make them stronger, totally. um, where they can, like, shatter misconceptions about mm. sexual violence and where they can feel less isolated. Mm. Um, and I think speaking out um, can be such an incredible act yeah. of resistance. So I think... Um, like I want to preface this conversation with totally. um, saying that um, you're speaking out. There is no shame in that, and yeah. it's actually, um, we want to create a world where that is okay. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's a really important. I think that's a really important point to like really emphasize because I think there's a in offering a critique of a kind of broad me too kind of political moment it's really important that that doesn't become a critique of anyone who took up mm. me too as a way of yeah. expressing their story mm -hmm. like i think that that because i think it maybe did offer people um a, a moment of solidarity mm. some kind of experience of that even even if we can now critique the kind of the way that that has manifested and the ways it's been taken up and mm. and we can problematize it a bit i think the problematic element of me too is not survivors of sexual mm. violence speaking up about their experiences mm. right it's this kind of broader terrain um in which some stories get taken up in ways that are different from the ways that others are yeah and um, i'm interested in um how it became a social media kind of thing. Yeah. Because, like, we've seen historically lots of black people and um, people of colour and racialised bodies, um, they don't get access to the media, they mm. don't get to tell their stories, they don't get mm. to take it to through the justice system, but they've, like, mobilised, like, the mm. Black Lives Matter movement through social media totally. to be able to um, have their voices heard. But then having everyone use that as a platform to... Um, 
to tell their story is also powerful, but they should recognise the roots and, like, mm. how social media is such, such an important part of, like, um, like civil mm. movements, yeah, especially yeah. for black people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a really interesting... I was reading an article, um, a Sydney Morning Herald article, I think, uh, that was about some of the... I think it was called um, Me Too Founder Has Mixed Feelings about how it unfolded. And it, it just references Tarana Burke, who Shelley was talking about a bit earlier, um, talking about her experience of, of being invited to go to the Oscars. And so, and you know, it's so a walking down the red carpet on this this night and everyone's asking her the same mm. question, which is like, so what's the statement? You know, are you all <laughs> going to wear black dresses? Are you going to wear a rose? Like, and she says, you know, we, we don't need another thing. If we keep making statements and not really doing the work, we're going to be in trouble. Mm. And she goes on to say that, like, when she first saw that the hashtag had become this, like, huge, you know, that it was kind of blowing up on Twitter, um, she was, she just felt afraid. She felt afraid that all of this work that she'd done for a long time was just going to dissolve. Um, but then I think it says that, you know, she kind of came around to the idea of this being a platform that could be quite useful and, and you know, d- decided to see if, if she could take it up in a different set of ways. But, um, but I think it, yeah, it was a really, um, it was a really interesting reminder that um, for her, she she says, um, it, me too. It should never have become an us and them thing. Me too has been a po- has been popular because of the moment we're in, but it's not really a women's movement. It's a movement for all survivors of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Women are the drivers because so many are victims or survivors but we can't erase the boys who spoke up about Kevin Spacey or the millions of men who've been subjected to sexual violence too which I think is an interesting like it's an interesting reminder or it's an interesting reminder of um of where it came from for her as an mm. as an organizer um and particularly as a community organizer it, it grew out of um, her experiences of running youth camps you know and and feeling like there was a real moment of solidarity possible if someone reveals an experience of sexual violence and someone else can say yeah me too and that that provides an interesting moment so I think yeah, there's there's something quite interesting about the way then that kind of origin story for me too, and then how it manifests as a social media movement. Mm. Yeah, that's really um, super interesting. You've just pulled um, so many points there. Um, I think like that point you made earlier that um, uh, that uh, the interviewer was asking mm. Tarana about um, what's the next thing, what you're yeah. wearing, and I just got this flashback sort of like being back at these um, network. Uh, domestic violence meetings and we would meet to like try to create some action you know social action yeah but the action was always like let's create a pin or let's create a banner (laughs) and we would spend like countless hours all this money on creating a bloody pin yeah and it just frustrated me to no end and i'm not saying pins or banners or like those marketing materials aren't useful or unhelpful um but they're like they're not going to create the transformation that we need. No, yeah. and it's often where the conversation stops. Like, yes. especially yeah. for organisations like White Ribbon. <laughs> we did it. It's like White Ribbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, like, absolutely. The pins and stuff are made by people in China in factories. So, like, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, and are pinned on to like these high, um, like middle class, rich, mm-hmm. uh, wealthy <laughs> men <laughs> who are some of them are perpetrators themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah, right. Remember when Malcolm Temple wore two? <laughs> <laughs> like, mate, you are. Over overcompensate <laughs> um yeah and I think that this is a really this is something that I think um is one of the really important elements of me too is that it, it kind of can't really be disentangled either from the kind of some of the discussion that that happened after the women's march about all of these ways that 
there's it's what um, a theorist we talk about a lot on the show, Mark Fisher, refers to as like the aestheticization of political movements. You know, or the aestheticization mm-hmm. of um, making it like palatable. Totally, yeah. yeah, and and kind of like you know taking these like these sort of aesthetic demonstrations of political action, but without any of the the kind of like substance mm. beneath them. So mm. it's like this. I mean, the most overt demonstration of it is the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, right? <laughs> like this kind of like invoking some kind of aesthetic of a political movement to sell Pepsi while like mm. a white woman hands a Pepsi to to mm. a cop, you know, mm. like. But this is this is I think one of the the things about me too that's interesting is that in some ways it is this like oh look all of these beautiful women wearing roses as this like act of solidarity but it, there's kind of a question there about like okay so what is that even in practice for those women like what does the feminist practice of me too mean for you like what does it mean if you're then a wealthy woman does it just mean you you wear this dress with this rose or like does it mean you just don't work with like particular people or that you only give jobs to women or that you own you know like what is what is it actually what what is the work there you know yeah before my retirement (laughs) um, when I was working in a sexual assault agency um, I had many conversations with survivors themselves about um, the Me Too campaign Mm. and there were a lot of mixed feelings um, but many of them felt really angry about it Hmm. because um, they felt like they had tried to speak up about it so many times. Yeah. Um, you know, often these women um, experience some kind of criminalization or yep. poverty, um, you know, racialized bodies. Yeah. Um, and it was only when Me Too started coming that, like, they were kind of being a little bit heard. Um, so I think there was that, and then there was also this frustration that um, there was all this kind of rhetoric around support. Uh, and comforting words and like yeah we believe you mm. but it wasn't followed by actions and it wasn't mm. followed by solidarity and I think for some other survivors that felt um, it was like another abuse of power or mm. like another um, act of violence um, mm. because it can be so empty to like um, and violent and unethical to like um, receive comforting words without it being followed by actions like yep. solid concrete actions. I, I mean I think in some ways it's like kind of classic textbook gaslighting right where you're like I hear you I really hear you but then like literally nothing changes Mm -hmm. you know so you're left then with this experience of being like well but oh this is even Mm -hmm. worse like am I did did, Mm -hmm. was that it like was that the resolution yeah like it took so much for you to like share that and people just like okay yeah what's the next hashtag (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and I think this this is like an interesting broader question about um about these kind of mass campaigns like what Mm. like is it even possible to imagine a mass social media campaign that I I mean maybe Black Lives Matter is an interesting thing Mm. to think about right because I think there are similar critiques right that the kind Mm. of hashtag version of Black Lives Matter um, is aestheticized to some extent Mm. that it, it, it doesn't yeah but I don't know I don't know what do you think uh, it's an interesting question. I think like it it ha- it has to be followed by um, mm. other strategies, you know, local yeah. based strategies where people are organising on the ground, where people are talking mm. to their friends and family about um, police brutality, yeah. um, state violence, um, interpersonal violence and conflict. If it's just a hashtag or a trend, um, of course, it's it's always going to be quite mm. um, tokenistic and shallow. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good way to get people to mobilise. Like we've seen with the the gun mm. reform thing in America, but we also have to see like match that with direct action because that's like mm. how we get change. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. 
But it also makes um, these movements accessible to people who can't have their bodies there or yep. feel um, like unsafe to be there mm. but they can also be a part of it yeah absolutely yeah. i'm really interested in this like the um the internet as a commons or like the internet as a public sphere mm. stuff um but maybe i think we're going to come back to talk a little bit more about to just really have a bit of a think about what kind of political claims me too is making because i think that's a really interesting question for me you are listening to 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's 10.42am on this Thursday morning. You're in the studio with Anna, Shelley and Michelle. How are you all doing? Really good. Really yeah, good. Really fired up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes. Um, if you're listening to the show and you've got thoughts you'd like to share or if you're listening and you want to hear a particular track, you can get in touch with us, 0420-626-733 or call us, 3252-1555. We're talking on the show today about um, hashtag Me Too, about the broader political movement that underlies it uh, and about its kind of manifestation as this online um political moment but what we wanted to talk about now was this um oh that track by the way uh, that excellent track was by ab original that's a new one called blackout um but yeah what we wanted to move on to talking about a bit now was this big question about what kind of political claims me too is making like what what is the what is the vision of justice that we see in a um, hashtag campaign like me too um and who are we looking to to uh, provide us with that justice. Thoughts? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, um, I, look, to be honest, I haven't followed Me Too super closely, mm. so I don't know what is the dominant, um, I guess, patterns of mm. what their claims are, but it, it doesn't seem to be too different from like mainstream, mm. like anti-violence, sexual yep. violence campaigns where um, it focuses on like um, the numbers uh, and the magnitude of the social problem and that this is a terrible problem. Mm. And yeah, I'm totally with that. Um, but I guess um, I think the political claim, or I'm interested in the, the response, right? Mm. Like I'm interested in like what kind of response is it eliciting? Um, and it makes me think about, um, you know, like a lot of those um, ads from like uh, World Vision um, and other things about like a, you know, a starving Ethiopian mm. child, that, you know, that picture mm. is like kind of ingrained in our minds. And yes, I get that they're trying to raise awareness about poverty, mm. um, but the claim that they're often making or that the response they're trying to elicit is that, you know, more international aid, more Western intervention. Mm. And so um, that has led to really problematic um, interventions mm. and um, doesn't actually um, get at actually the poverty that they experience or this, um, is actually quite linked mm. to Western imperialism. And so for this campaign, um, I don't know if um, there has been enough work um, by mainstream feminism um, people to really um, unpack mm. uh, what kind of response we want. Yeah. Um, the focus has mainly been on yeah, numbers and stories, uh, which I don't think in and of itself um, will produce a, a change. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what is your take, Shelley? I've just seen lots of like name and shame and people yep. um, like the babe.net and the Aziz and Zari mm. story without any real discussions of what like reparations or what steps mm. they can take to be accountable. It's just mm. like, well, they've done a wrong thing. Like we should stop them from doing anything else, like isolate them, stop buying their products and just like ignore them. Mm. But what does that produce? It's also like rep 
like it's replicating the violence um, of prisons, like mm. isolating people and banishing people um, instead of holding them close because, and this is not going to solve like social and economic mm. and political problems like by relying on these services, services mm. um, to solve social problems. Mm. We need to talk about social problems mm. and, um, and why we um, like these problems are produced and yeah. how we are complicit in these problems. Yeah, totally. And I, I mean, I think that that's a really like that's certainly that's the thing that I've been struck by with Me Too is what what would it what does it even look like to imagine a Me Too movement where the justice claim is framed around transformation, around mm. the the fundamental belief in transformation that that it is possible to imagine a world where gender based violence is not a norm, mm. you know, or where where there's um, where this is uh, aberrant. Mm. Yeah, and it kind of stopped at like. Um, survivors disclosing their story. It didn't talk about um, anything about consent or like power dynamics mm. or um, racism or mm. any other systems of like oppression that enable this gender advance to keep mm. happening. Um, it just stops at I've experienced this too, and like oh, let's just all be sad because everyone has experienced this. Mm. Yeah. One of the interesting things um, that I noticed on my wall when it was trending was um, a lot of uh, I guess. Uh, allies, I guess, or men um, mm. would mm. like like a post uh, of me too, um, but the, and then like would condemn the perpetrators, right? And so to, to like distance themselves yep. from the issue, and we see mm. this over and over again. Like, not all white. men. <laughs> <laughs> not all. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the good men. This is horrible. How dare they? Yeah. Um, and it's classic white ribbon kind of mentality yep. as well. Um, and so you asked a question about like. Help about complicity mm. and what does it look like you know for us to um make ourselves complicit or like see ourselves as complicit mm. in um the structures of oppression um and i think it it really does partly involve not distancing ourselves from the problem and yep. not pitying survivors because i think that yep. also distances ourselves from the issue um, because survivors don't want to be pitied um they don't want just like um you know comforting words mm. i think they want um, they also want like real political changes mm. and actions so that violence stops. Yeah, and this is this is the thing that I because I'm really interested in legal structures around this stuff, and I think later in the show we're going to have a chat with some folks who are um, more invested in political abolition as as in political movements around prison abolition. But one of the things that I'm curious about is like is one of the things that means that there's a kind of hollowing out of possible responses to Me mm. Too that at the moment our only kind of avenue, one of our only avenues for responding to sexual violence is a legal system that pathologises the perpetration of, mm. of um, sexual violence, but also to some extent pathologises being a survivor of sexual violence. Mm. Uh, and at any rate, hollows all of these things out into something that can be proven in a courtroom, you know, that there is mm. a kind of way of, arbiting, arbit you know, of arbitrating. And what I think is really what has struck me about me too is that I just think that there's this whole litany of experiences of, of you know, bad sex, of mm -hmm. uncomfortable interactions, of like this this kind of broad way uh, kind of texture of consent being um, being broken in different forms that intersects with a whole bunch of different experiences of being in a body, you know. And this is this is something that that um, transcends gender, right? That goes to, goes across a bunch of different um, social experiences. But that there's a kind of there's nothing we can do with that if our only recourse is to be like, well, does this fit the definition of sexual harassment or sexual assault? If mm. not, like or rape, 
if not, then well, that's that's kind of all mm-hmm. you've got. You could yeah. just you just have to chalk this up to like, oh, that damned patriarchy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the criminal code is so limited. And I think in 2010, um, out of all the re- the reported cases of sexual um, assault or harassment in New South Wales, only one out of ten, so ten percent of ca- um, of the cases saw mm. convictions. So what is um, so what does it mean for survivors when they attach this sense of justice to seeing their um, seeing the person who's mm. caused harm behind bars? And because that rarely happens in ninety yeah. percent of the cases, reported cases, that doesn't happen. Mm. So what does this mean? Like, and yeah. then also, I think Michelle talked about the idea of the perfect victim. Mm. Do you want to explain? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I mean there is no such thing as a perfect victim, um, but there is a construction of uh, who a perfect victim is. Um, and I think we're all kind of quite familiar with mm. that. Um, and so the perfect victim is, you know, kind of this idea of the mythical real rape. Um, it mm. only happens when an innocent young girl who is conservatively dressed, sober, suffering no mental or physical disabilities is attacked by an, an identifiable monster mm-hmm. um, who uses weapons or physical violence to forcibly rape her or rape them. She fights back, receives injuries and reports to the police immediately afterwards. Mm. And she cries um, every time she talks about yeah. it. Or like, you know, so it's kind of like, she has to dress a particular yeah. way, look a particular way, speak a pe- particular yeah, way. Speak yeah. A way. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so often these uh, there's social factors that det- determine believability and legitimacy yeah. um, that often fall on lines of class, race, um, ability, etc. Mm. Yeah, and these are the cases that might receive convictions, which mm. is so problematic because like no such perfect mm. victim exists and it's constructed in that way mm. and the legal system is constructed in that way mm. and and also that like if if prison is the only kind of space that is imaginable as a recourse like what do we do with the fact that most um, experiences of sexual violence are, are perpetrated by someone that the um, the survivor knows mm-hmm. or, or mm. but even more common that they are in a relationship with or that they are you know um, at least in a community with because, I mean, for, for most people, you probably don't want to see somebody who you are intimately entangled with in prison, mm. right? That's, mm. that's like a pretty hard ask mm. for the, the kind of litany of experiences of violence that mm. maybe don't, cla- don't fall into the perfect victimhood of, you know, yeah. Yeah, especially for people in, like, public housing, if their partner um, goes to prison, then they're not a family unit anymore, then mm. they lose the house and lose the kids. Yep. There's so many other um, aspects to consider. Yeah, so, and then people blame people for not um, taking it <coughs> through the legal system, but they don't consider the other factors of it and then um, trivialise their experience when they try and speak about it. It's like, well, it wasn't serious enough that you mm. took it to court, so mm. you shouldn't be talking about it, stop complaining. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, that, you know, like, believability should mm. never be kind of based on um, whether one tells your story, you know, like yeah. or how mm. you tell it. Um, um, I had a point, but I just forgot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about I, re- I read a piece this week by um, Gillian B. White, who's one of the editors of um, the... Oh, God. Anyway, I've immediately... Fr- oh, the, the Atlantic. <laughs> um, but she... And it's called The Glaring Blind Spot of Me mm. Too. And uh, there's just a really short quote where she's talking about... So Lena Dunham, I don't know if mm. um, if folks remember... The, well, yeah, that's mm. a bit I'm of an allergic. eye roll, inevitably. <laughs> um, but uh, provoked particular outrage um, in and around Me Too as someone who'd been so vociferously invested in um, in this kind of movement. 
when one of her male friends was accused of um, sexual violence, um, came out and said, well, look, I just don't think he did it. But more or less, you know, there was a bit more, like, poetic licence. Um, but what um, Gillian White writes is, so, you know, in this moment, Dunham's actions, they fed into this implicit message that believability, sympathy and public rage are reserved only for certain women, mm. and those women are rarely women of colour because mm. the, the person who had accused um, her friend was a woman of colour. He was a white dude. Mm. Um, and the, this kind of, like... Um, bastion of like white feminists in the public eye came in behind him you know rather than mm. his accuser and you know um, Dunham apologised in the way that um, that she does <laughs> and, uh, and said you know oh yeah I got that wrong um but I think it's a really interesting. It's it's a really interesting. Like if we're if we're then going to look at the kind of the discourse of believability, mm-hmm. like how is believability constructed? Even if she does later, like say, oh sorry, yeah, I was probably I was just defending my friend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it still builds this kind of discourse where particular stories and particular bodies are believed, and particular stories and particular bodies are like must prove themselves over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michelle and I were talking about that on the couch before. Like, if you're white, you have a presumption of innocence, mm. but if you're um, a person of colour, then you're guilty until proven innocent. Mm. And we've seen that with the um, Aziz Ansari story. As soon as um, Babe.net published it, and Babe.net even, isn't even like a real news outlet or yeah. anything, people were like, immediately condemning him with yeah. like absolute uh, with absoluteness because they attached um the violence to his being because mm. um racialized bodies are often like um have criminality like mm. attached to it but like for white people that doesn't happen even mm. f- even with like Harvey Weinstein they're like oh we should just wait till like mm. the allegations are proven absolutely yeah yeah and I mean this is the the kind of protection of white womanhood has mm. has been at the core of so many like moments of oppression right that's yeah. kind of the this this um it's it's one of the structural features of colonial logics you know it's even when we talk about like white people perpetrating violence we talk about like oh they were totally out of character they're mm. loving father loving parent um yeah. good mate yeah, yeah. but in, on this one occasion acted very out of character mm. so they should be forgiven and yeah we shouldn't like worry about it yeah, mm. yeah. no <laughs> I know a lot of um I think white feminists would say that you know we shouldn't muddle these issues together like let's just keep the issue quite clear like let's just focus like, I've heard so many times like this thing around let's just um focus back on gender you know on gendered violence as though like um, racism, colonisation, uh, presumption of white innocence doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and I think if we are actually truly to um, dismantle patriarchal violence, um, then we we have to like unpack all forms of oppression and, and particularly um, yeah colonisation, racism, mm. white supremacy. Absolutely. You're listening to 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is 10 past 11 on Thursday morning. Uh, I'm Anna. I'm in the studio today with Shelley and Michelle. How are you both going? Good. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, uh, we've been talking for much of the first hour about talking through, I guess, some of the, um, the constructions of the Me Too campaign, this kind of big uh, hashtag campaign that unfolded particularly in, in um, late last year, particularly in 2017, uh, around um, expressing or producing a kind of mass movement um, around uh, sexual violence or experiences of sexual and gender-based violence. Um, 
we we want to dig a little before the before deadlines at eleven. We were starting to talk a little bit about the kind of politics of believability, and one of the one of the ways that Me Too has been a really interesting political moment because it's really brought to the fore these fundamental questions about. Um, about what it means to be believable, about the kind of construction of uh, believability, of legibility, of um, of sympathy. You know, the the kind of unequal distribution of um, of global empathy toward particular bodies and not others. Um, and we wanted to talk a little bit more about this, particularly around um, this question of the relationship between believability and a kind of politics of respectability, Michelle. Talk to me about the politics of respectability. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I want to, I guess, grounded in, um, I guess, uh, experiences I've had with survivors uh, navigating the legal system yep. and the police systems and how um, respectability politics, um, they're constantly confronted by it and that um, impacts whether they experience uh, justice yeah. and healing or not um, and also not just legal systems but also social services um, so um, invariably what I've witnessed and experienced in working with survivors in attending um, you know police interviews with them mm. is that um, if you present a particular way if you're poor if you don't speak well if you don't if you're not articulate yep. um, if you forget if you like stumble and cross your words then um, you are dismissed um, if you're a sex worker you're dismissed and victim blamed I mean like all survivors of victim blame, but yeah. like particularly those who are deemed um, slutty, promiscuous, mm -hmm. and those who have experienced or have some histories of mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and also that's used in court as well to dismiss survivors. So that's kind of the the two angles that like um, defenders, uh, defense yeah. lawyers go for. You know, are they are they crazy or are they are they yeah. mentally unstable or are they lying about it? Um, and uh, do they have a history of um, promiscuity? And so I think, um, I don't think that many of us have deconstructed those ideas. Mm. Um, and even in like the social services or human services in which um, I work in, I think a lot of the workers give a lot more support and empathy um, to those who like articulate a, mm. um, things in in ways that are palatable, um, are like polite and <laughs> would like to receive a service. But if they demand a yep. certain thing or if they um, are too, um, I don't know, unruly, mm. then they're dismissed and they're not offered um, more support or they're not offered refuge. Mm. And so I think um, respectability politics really... Um, is another form of violence. I yeah. Think. Yeah, and I think that this is a really... This feels like a really important point to me because I think one of the things that... And we've talked about this already, but one of the things that Me Too does is that it, it tries to produce a sense of solidarity, right? Mm. It tries to produce a sense of, like, the, the sheer bigness of this experience as a way of grounding some kind of form of solidarity among mm. survivors. But I think the, the problem of it is that those those declarations are never um, equal, evenly mm. distributed, mm. right? And the way that we encounter them is never as this kind of, like, mass archive of, like, equally understood experiences. It's it's understood in this, this way that kind of crosses 
all of the forms of oppression that are all already like operating on bodies yeah. and i think that this is yeah this is a thing that i'm i'm really struck by with me too that it it kind of and again maybe to come back to that idea of the aestheticization it's like a kind of aestheticization of solidarity you know it's like this kind of um representation of mass movement or solidarity or like shared experience um, but then as soon as you get beyond the literal, like, hashtag me too on a status, nothing else about the experience of sexual violence will be evenly distributed, you know, will mm. be the same across bodies. Mm. There's this really, um, I think, fitting quote uh, from Asha Bandel um, when I attended a carceral feminism mm. um, event in the States and she says, all of us are harmed but not all of us are treated as though we are harmed. Mm. Um, and so I think that's like an important point. And those who, um, yeah, receive more empathy um, definitely fall on particular lines. Mm. And it's not to say that, of course, everyone deserves yeah. support and um, healing. Um, but if we aren't mindful of these um, factors, then we're, we are just kind of replicating mm. those structures. Yeah, absolutely. And that that these, and I think this is a thing I feel um, particularly interested in as a white woman. That the those same mechanisms by which my fragility is constructed to my aid as a victim in the in some spaces mm. is also the mechanism by which a whole bunch of other systems of oppression and alienation operate right this kind of construction of the white woman as victim as in needing as needing protection as you know the kind of this kind of object of protection um, that's operating in in that discourse is operating in multiple ways, and in in some moments it might mean that I'm read as a perfect victim, as a you know if I if I entered a space as a survivor, um, but in other ways it would it, it is also the thing that would mean um, the pathologization of many of the people that I come into contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's there is a real hollowing out of that I think we're uncomfortable with the idea of complicity right mm. M- many of us mm-hmm. are uncomfortable with the idea that we might be complicit in systems that we're also seeking to mm. transform or reject or change or mm. Mm. what are your thoughts Shelley yeah I think <laughs> complicity is like a very uncomfortable thing to sit with but most people just end up sitting with it mm. like we should be able to do something mm. but being in a situation of, of complicity is much easier than being in, in the situation where you've survived the harm itself mm. so yeah i think mm. like i feel complicit in in terms of the sexual assault uh movement and industry mm. have constructed the monster myth you mm. know um the idea that perpetrators are monsters um and so this dichotomy between like survivor perpetrator um, makes it that you never want to identify as a perpetrator yeah. right? because you'll be banished, excluded, totally um, imprisoned. And so it makes it really, really hard for anyone who has experienced harm to admit um, culpability, yeah. um, to admit that they have transgressed and caused harm. So I'd like to see a movement where like, we um, trouble those binaries, not to say that people haven't experienced harm or that people haven't, like sometimes those yeah. distinctions are very clear, but to say that um, in in sex, in gender, in, in relations, like we, uh, through our privilege, through our power, through relationships, like there's always a possibility of causing harm. Mm. Um, and so I'd like to kind of see how can we like imagine ourselves as um, always possibly doing harm. Mm. Um, and I think that's confronting because it's like mm. you don't want to be um, this monster, but like mm. can we imagine ourselves as, yes, we have done harm or we, yes, we've experienced harm, but we're neither like um, 
complete victims or complete um, demons. Mm. And I think that this is is the thing I'm really interested in or that I think is really important because I think one of the, it's one of the byproducts of um, of cr- producing a literally a legal dichotomy mm. where you you're either one or the mm. other right mm. and I think one of the things that maybe happens quite often at least discursively but probably also in like really material ways is that in order to have your harm recognized mm. you have to produce a narrative of yourself yes. and your experience yes. that doesn't allow for you to be culpable in any way mm. and so but I think what that produces as a kind of discourse that maybe starts at an individual experience but expands out is one where we are we are becoming in, increasingly incapable of seeing that we are that we might be simultaneously um, producers of violence and victims of it mm. I mean obviously this is like this is intersectionality right mm. this is exactly what it set out to describe or mm. diagnose as an analytic for power was to say well at, at any given point mm. power is operating in a multiplicity of ways mm. at a multiplicity of moments but but I think that there is a real um, there's a real reluctance to it precisely because I mean um, like you know sitting with complicity versus maybe acting to transform the conditions that make you complicit um like how do you do either of those things if you're also struggling with this question of recognition or of like you know what how do you do it if you are also uh, someone who's experienced harm but you're also then complicit in producing it you know like there's yeah yeah. i think it's really interesting to look at harm as something of like acts of doing instead Mm. of just like this totalizing issue yeah yeah, or an identity or something that is just um too um complicated to start deconstructing Hmm. because if you see it as acts of doing you can also do acts of resistance or like absolutely doing yeah 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 totally and i think that that focus on um on the kind of everyday also enables that right Mm -hmm. that if you if you focus on these kind of yeah, yeah, on these, um, even on, on systems of oppression as practices, like if we think about them as a set of everyday practices, then we also then have the tools to dismantle them or intervene in them at least, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think yeah. when people think about abolishing prisons or dismantling or tearing down mm. cages, people get overwhelmed and then mm. ask, how, how, like, you know, yeah. how can we keep people safe and where will we put all the people who are really, really dangerous? Mm. And so I'd like to, like, always take it, like, a step back and think about, like, how do we, like, I, I think Victoria Law, who writes a book mm. called um, Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggle of Incarcerated Women, says, like, how do we build systems of support, ne- uh, how do we build systems or support networks that crowd the state out? Mm. And so um, thinking about just everyday mm. friendships, right, like, just Totally. You know, um, reel it back down to just your friendships. How do you think of them when they say something which hurts your feelings mm. or there's a conflict in your relationship with your family? Um, is there, Because sometimes I have this urge to, like, want to push people away mm. and exclude and punish. Um, and I think that's kind of um, quite true of a lot of people as mm. well. And so I, I see abolition as almost as a spiritual practice, right? Absolutely. How do we relate to people? How do we, like... Um, ensure that we're not um, inflicting violence when mm. we're trying to protect ourselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, because I remember at um, an event there was someone who um, said and did something that made me feel uncomfortable mm. and then my immediate reaction was like, make him leave. Yeah. Mm. But then I felt really bad about that because like, I do identify as a prison abolitionist. It's like, mm. well, n- no, I should be like explaining and like educating. But mm. also when when you have such experiences is it 
it's hard to be in the position where yeah. you have mm. to teach that other person. Absolutely. So, yeah, in that instance, it was good because two people helped and explained. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the onus shouldn't be on the person who's experiencing the harm to, mm. like, yeah. um, educate or, like, tell the person to leave. You know, I'm wondering about, like, who were the other outliers or, like, people mm. who were in more positions of power to be able to, like, have that conversation mm. with that yeah. guy, you know. Mm. Yeah. But it's interesting that my initial reaction yeah. was like leave. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like no, I can't think that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's, okay. that's yeah, totally. Because I think that's the other thing, right? Is that these, like, surely part of the the project of being, um, you know, of, of thinking about prison abolition, of thinking about abolition, means thinking about transformation, which means thinking about slowness, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it means thinking about the fact that these things take time. That they're not like you know, snap your fingers and we're all, like, enlightened and already ready to go and, like, you know, produce the new and the shell of the old. Like, mm. there's there's this real kind of... And I think maybe part of what, what interests me about abolitionist goals is that it is a focus on the kind of... these kind of structure, these counter-structures of care, these ways of, like, mobilising care collectively, um, weaponising it in different ways, you know, using it... Using it um, I really love that phrase to create crowding out the state you know I think it because I think it maybe gives us it, for me at least it gives me a more um something more to work with than a kind of like tear down the state or mm-hmm. dismantle the state you know mm-hmm. I think this idea of like no we just kind of slowly take up the space until it the state mm-hmm. just dissolves at the edges you know mm-hmm. because we because it's not needed anymore mm. There's something really compelling about that, but we are uh, we're it's we're probably just it's just about time for us to have a bit of a chat um, to Marissa, who's uh, a long long time um, friend of Radio Reversal. Uh, she's an artist and a writer and a researcher who spent a lot of time thinking about the relationships between, in particular, feminist organising and prison abolition movements. Um, and we're going to have a bit of a chat to her today about this this question that we've been kind of circling around of what it might look like to imagine a prison abolitionist or a transformative approach to a campaign like Me Too. You are listening to 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's 11.28. That track you just heard was a beautiful new one. That was Miss Blanks with Fantasy. Um, we're joined on the line now by Marissa, long-time Radio Reversal friend. Marissa, can you hear us? Yes, hello. Hello. How are you this Thursday morning? Pretty great. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. So we've been talking on the show, um, as you know, about Me Too, and we wanted to um, to check in with you to have a bit of a conversation more specifically about um, prison abolition. So give me the rundown. Tell me about prison abolition as a political goal. <laughs> Um, Okay, well, in a nutshell, prison abolition is, um, it's a political vision that has the goal of eliminating prisons, policing and surveillance, uh, surveillance, eliminating our reliance on those things um, to address harm, to make us safe, to deal with social problems and instead putting in place lasting alternatives that actually guarantee us those things. Mm. So um, I think prison abolition is a huge um, component of any conversation about anti-violence mm. because I think it really confronts, uh, forces us to confront uh, what violence actually exists in our society um, and then have a really, um, I think, juicy conversation and, and difficult conversation often about um, whether the structures that we have in place actually address that violence. Mm. So... Um, yeah, but I guess in preparing for this talk, I've also um, I've been listening to Beth Ritchie. Mm. So she's an American um, uh, writer, academic, activist, and as 
has written a book called Arrested Justice um, and also did a really great talk, um, which I recommend to everyone, mm. um, about Arrested Justice and black feminist reflections on carceral feminism and mm. prison abolition. And I guess the way she frames it is that she became a prison abolitionist through the anti-violence movement, through her work in the anti-violence movement. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think there are many different ways we can maybe come to prison abolition when we're thinking about sexual violence and gender-based violence. Mm. Um, yeah. Totally. So I guess we, we were thinking um, one of the things that we were curious about on the show in thinking about some of the ways in which claims to justice are framed within the Me Too movement is that they really um, re-emphasise a reliance on the legal system and on, on prisons as the kind of, um, the, the you know, the formation of justice for survivors of sexual violence. What do you think it might look like to imagine a kind of an alternative to that? Like, can you can you think of ways in which Me Too might frame demands for justice for survivors that doesn't reposition the prison as, um, you know, the space in which that will happen? Yeah, I think... Um I think maybe we have to start by even recognising that there is a problem with mm. prisons because I know that it, it really seems super obvious when we start or when we um, are talking about it now. But mm. I think for a lot of um, for a lot of people, prison really is um, the default response yeah. for harm, and I and I guess there's also the hidden it's hidden in the way that prison operates to the kinds of violence that are continually perpetrated on survivors of sexual assault. Um, you know, so mm. I think um, we have to start the conversation by maybe mapping out mm. well, what actually is violence and mm. what actually do, does cause people long-term harm, does mm. cause um, women or, you know, non-cis um, het white men harm. Mm. Um, and I reckon, you know, strip searching in prison mm. um, is a huge is a huge issue that we have a complete blind spot to. So framing demands around um, those actions or mm. um, forms of violence would be something that I would like to see yeah. in the Me Too movement. But the question of, yeah, of how we conceptualise... Um, justice in a bigger way or genuine justice for survivors of, of sexual violence and um, gender-based violence. I think we just have to really listen to what mm. people who survived want and yeah. that's probably going to be different for everyone. Mm. Um, and I guess, yeah, that sounds like not a very good answer. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know, what are you... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Michelle, do you have um do you have uh, thoughts or questions for Marissa? Oh, I think Marissa has just made um you've made so many really good points like listening to survivors and and what they want. I think that's where we go so wrong so often is that um, we take on these really patronising, um, colonising strategies and assume that assume what is best for survivors. Um, and obviously it's complicated when you ask what survivors what they want and sometimes they do want punitive responses mm. and so um, that's not necessarily straightforward. Um, but I, I like, Marissa, what you said about, like, um, you know, need, us needing to reconceptualise um, justice in a different mm. way and really think about what violence is. I don't think that's really simple. I think that's, like 
really one of the root kind of questions that we need to be asking. And also like asking questions around like rehabilitation and safety and what that means. Mm. I don't know if Marissa, if you, um, you've experienced that, like people ask, okay, but what about, you know, we need to rehabilitate men or like, you know, perpetrators and we need to offer some safety for survivors. How do you, how would you respond to some of those questions? Marissa, are you still on the line? I am, but I think I missed a lot of what um, what was said. I'm really oh, no. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, do you, well, I guess, um, yeah. What What do you think about, um, or how do you how do you think we might be able to reconceptualize um, harm? Is that is that was that? Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess uh, how might you respond to questions around um, that prisons offer safety for survivors uh, and that prisons rehabilitate mm. the the people who've caused harm yeah did you yeah so did you get that marissa no sorry. Oh, no that's okay it's all right i think it maybe the mics aren't working but anyway uh-huh. so um we we're curious i guess about um what you think about or how you think we might be able to um push back against idea the idea that prisons are these sites of rehabilitation that prisons are places that people will go in order to experience the opportunity to kind of transform their worldviews and then they'll come back into society as reformed um, people. Like, what do you think, you know, I mean, maybe this is still a popular narrative of the prison, right, but in the as part of this kind of, you know, liberal welfare state identity at least. Mm. Yeah, I think... um I think maybe it's about it. Well, it's uh, yeah. This is how like the strategies of the prison revolution movement, maybe. And mm. um, I'm not sure that there's any one strategy that's more effective than others. Mm. Um, but something that I've been thinking a lot about is that we need to really see the prison as a public institution. So mm. um, the prison, you know, we. Um, I think what happens is when people go to prison um, for. A majority of people, um, particularly white privileged people mm. in Australia who are people in positions of power, there's no personal connection with that experience mm. or there's no... Um, it, it, because prisons are far away desperately and um, hidden away and have all sorts of restrictions on ability, our ability to communicate with mm. people who are in prison, um, that means that it is really easy to hide um, mm. what happens there and we disappear people there. And mm. I think... Um, I think actually forming real connections with people who are in prison and thinking of the prison as a place where um, where there's a responsibility on all of us to make that connection because mm. the prison is a public institution is maybe a way to um, to force attention and and all, but not just attention or like mm. you know awareness because that's like a really that often seems really hollow right like we just need to be more aware Mm. but to actually have connection and to recognize that um as a society we have responsibility right like Mm. we set up this institution apparently to like correct people Mm. um and we we kind of know that that's bullshit and it's not working and that's why there are all of these inquiries into, you know, the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in prison, like, mm. oh, why is that? And, you know, or the um, Human Rights Watch report that was recently released about disabilities in prison. I think, like, all of those things, um, that's the awareness, but what mm. needs to happen is the connection and somehow figuring out a way to have that personal connection mm. um, or societal, systemic connection to what happens to people in prison. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think 
once we start, once this connection start to happen, um, I think that that will um, support a, gr- a different mm. understanding of what harm is or how difficult it is to be firstly in that place mm. of, of the prison and then how difficult it is um, to leave that place, mm. assuming that where, where people might assume that you've had, I don't know, whatever it is that people assume, mm. um, when that's actually not the case at all, or that you, you come out to, when you come out to nothing, you know, mm. I think people don't realise that um, people who've experienced horrific abuse are thrown into prison and then released with a, you know, garbage bag full of their stuff yep. and have to walk to the train station. I really don't think that that's, um, yeah, that mm. people think about that stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really struck by this um, the point that you make about prisons as this kind of way that we disappear the inconvenient um, you know knowledges about society from our from our vision. And I wondered um, maybe just to to kind of emphasise this because one of the conversations that you and I have had a lot over the last couple of weeks and particularly before this this show was about how the violence done to incarcerated women's bodies is not understood as part of the catalogue of violence that Me Too is diagnosing. So these kind of routine forms of um, gender-based violence undergone by incarcerated women is kind of invisible in that movement. And I wondered if you wanted to speak to to that as well. Like, how what does it look like for that for those forms of of state violence, state sanctioned violence, and also the kind of violence that is done peripheral to state violence. So the violence that then happens inside um, inside prisons. What does it look like for that to be part of this kind of catalogue of Me Too? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's completely horrific. You know, in twenty seventeen. Um, women in prison were sexually assaulted over 16,000 times by the state, you know? That's in the form of strip searches and um, that's just run-of-the-mill mm. in prison to have, um, without your consent, mm. um, to be required to remove your clothing and um, be searched. And, you know, the the bureaucratic reasons for that are to prevent drugs from entering into prison um but that's clearly false you know the victorian ombudsman wrote a report that was like well you didn't really find many drugs and when you did those things when you strip searched women when you sexually assaulted them um but there are still heaps of drugs in prison like guess they're getting in another way you know what is what does that mean Mm. but it's because that violence is perpetrated by a person in a uniform, by a mm. woman in a uniform, um, mm. if you're following procedure, um, that that we say that that's okay. But I guess then the flow-on effects of that are, are that's incredibly re-traumatising or traumatising mm. in any case, but especially re-traumatising for someone who has survived um, a yeah. sexual assault or sexual abuse. And, um, and then I guess the... The whole system is designed, the whole prison system and surveillance systems are set up to um, to pit people against each other or to create, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, I'm, this isn't at all a good um, analogy, but mm. it's like being in high school, you know, and this gossip and pressure and um, 
you know, constantly having to watch your back and be, you can be punished at any moment mm. by um, a person who has power over you um, and really with no no accountability or oversight. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that that's those forms of violence and having power over um, over women mm. or, um, you know, non-suicide white men are just reinforce mm. patterns of violence and abuse that exist in the community. Mm. And so, um, yeah, that's that's violence that continues to be enacted on women's bodies and then continues, uh, and it, you know, on their minds. Mm. And is, of course, like, how can we think then that, you know, that changes anything about um, social relationships or, um, you know, society when women are are released back mm. from, uh, you know, I finally get to leave this horrific place, that yeah. prison. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for chatting to us, Marissa. There's so much uh, in every time you speak to us on the show, I just think we need to do a whole show that's just you telling us about things. But um, one day, one day You're in very the kind. beautiful future that will happen. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to us today. Do you have any, any final thoughts or any recommendations for um, resources for folks? We'll, um, we'll chuck the Beth Ritchie Arrested Justice um, piece up on our yeah, Facebook page. I think um, that's what I'm thinking about at the moment now and I'm I'm super keen to keep thinking about me too and mm. I guess um, I'm sorry I missed what was said before <laughs> um, on the radio but I, I really think that um, imagining alternatives to the current system are so important and um, I, even though I, I sort of said oh well we you know everyone will want a different thing I mean maybe that is that there is something in that because I think what the system does so much is dehumanises mm. it dehumanises every every kind of participant whether you're in experiencing as a, the system as a you know quote unquote offender mm. or as a survivor of um, harm or you know complainant victim whatever language we want to use there um, and I think that yeah maybe individual justice as kind of impractical as that is mm. is the way that we do address the dehumanizing nature of the system so yeah i guess maybe i want to keep thinking about that and keep imagining alternatives with all of mm. you wonderful babes on radio <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's to that in general <laughs> <laughs> um we're gonna we're gonna go out with uh, a beautiful track this is rilo kylie and 15 thank you so much for joining us marissa Good morning, Zedheads. You are listening to Radio Reversal here on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. That last track was Rallo Kylie, an old one, but a good one. That was 15. Um, we're rapidly running out of time on our show today, but we're very stoked to be joined in the studio um, by some of the folks from Snapcat and uh, Arts Collective, Femin Feminist Arts Collective from um, Sydney and Melbourne, respectively, and with Marisa from People Artist Place here in Brizzy. No worries. Um, so we are talking, we've been talking on the show today uh, in a bunch of ways about, um, I guess, gender in the public realm, representations of gender in the public realm. Um, and we wanted to have a chat with you all because, so, well, Snapcat at least, um, Anna, Anna and Renee, Anna. Renee, excellent. Yep. Great. Um, the, <laughs> um, so yeah, you're you're uh, in Brisbane to host the beautiful game, which is a, a participatory artwork. Do you want to tell me a bit about what what's going to be happening? 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, we've been working on this um, for uh, all of this year so far. We came to Brisbane a couple of weeks ago, so we've been doing some on-the-ground research and getting to know this wonderful city. Um, so what we've created is a north versus south side um, interactive live art football game. Mm -hmm. um, so we've basically invited uh, women and non-binary identifying people of Brisbane to come and join either the north side Lamingtons or the south side Tufts and um, bring on their fiercest personalities to play a game of football that involves a giant six foot ball and a winding field full of sculptures. Okay, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, one of the things we have been talking about on the show and well, one of the things I'm interested in, in all of you talking about and Marisa, this is something we've talked about before, is what you think the relationship is between your kind of arts practice and the broader political movements. And we started out the show with a big conversation about um, toxic masculinity and sport in Australia, which I think mm -hmm. is one of the big conversations unfolding around conversations about gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. Is that Are they kind of themes that you're interested in in your work? Is this something that you're exploring? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the kind of um, continuing and growing conversation about women in sport, that's definitely where our research um, behind this project and the last few that we've done um, have kind of stemmed from, mm. um, you know, starting with um, the Matildas and their strike for equal pay, mm. very basic, right? Um, and, the you know, the um, celebration of the women's AFL. But then also, yeah, these underlying... Um, uh, these underlying atmospheres in mm. a lot of sports games of really kind of macho, mm. um, egotistical, um, you know, uh, obviously privileging like physical ability mm. and athleticism. Um, yeah, it's something that we're really interested mm. in kind of um, interrogating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about yeah. you, Marisa? So People Artist Place have this um, mm -hmm. this new new project um, yeah. to bring public artworks to urban spaces in Brisbane. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? What is the politics of public art? I think that this project is really a great example because we're not playing it on a sports field. We're roaming around New Farm Park. So mm. I think it's a great way to show different ways that spaces can be used and for fun activities and mm. activities that might be somewhat unconventional. Mm. and participatory and I think it's really great to um, get as many people as possible out there and doing something unconventional. Mm. I think that's kind of a radical act in itself without all of these other mm. layers of politics that we've sort of added in. Mm. And the visibility of a big group of women and non-binary people, um, you know, it's like working together to, it's going to take a whole team of people to move this giant ball around mm. the field. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's a really big part of it, mm. of taking up space and yep. it's going to be loud and it's going to be colourful yep. and um, yeah, really, really visible. So. Yeah. Mm. We've, we've been talking a little bit on the show um, kind of around the idea of like prefigurative politics. So this idea of trying to build um, new kind of forms of social or organising new ways of relating to one another rather than waiting for the state to kind of provide it for us. And this this idea that Michelle was speaking about a bit earlier in particular of, of kind of providing these networks of support that just crowd out the state. Mm -hmm. Do you think of these kind of public art projects as these kind of demonstrations of like a world beyond capitalism and the state? Yeah, absolutely. We've, a lot of our projects have had sort of touches of anarchism or um, protest or, yeah, different forms of social organisation and um, even though that the actions often end up being small in the scheme of things, mm. um, in that moment, whether it's um, a feminist bike gang or uh, a parade um, or 
or a football game, mm. we've, we've really found that the community spirit of people being like, yeah, we're doing this thing, it's mm. real and we're doing it, like, it's unbeatable mm. and you can kind of forget about, like, the capitalistic, mm. icky po- political system <laughs> we operate in for that moment. So, yeah, yeah it's a big part of our work. You two use a lot of those really collectivist emblems, like girl gangs and sports teams and protest as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot about collective action, which mm. I guess is also reflected in our collaborative way of working mm. um, in itself. And one thing that's really nice is that often the kinds of, like with the um, bike gang project, for example, which was this feminist bike gang called the Lightning Furies, um, you know, we had people who took part in that, which was very much about performing mm. bravery and being tough and like making, you know, crafting an identity. So there was craft involved. Yep. Um, but we had people afterwards telling us stories about how being part of that um, group of women riding bikes in and being as brave as possible also helped them to say, um, you know, stand up to somebody mm. when they ma- when a man made an inappropriate comment or, mm. you know, things like that, like being being able to be assertive in mm. in the real world. And yeah. that's, you know, what we hope that people can, can get out of it so that it does actually start to make some kind of change mm. within participants. Yeah, yeah that, that's fascinating. We've been talking a lot on the show about one of the, the interesting things about Me Too as this kind of online phenomenon mm. that kind of reflected this, this interesting, almost like a hollowing out of the community basis of this stuff. You know, it... it um, and I think Me Too was a really interesting political moment, but this is this idea of like staging things in public places is really interesting in giving people a physical chance to like occupy space differently or experience a different kind of community. Mm-hmm. Um, is that yeah? Is that part of the? I presume that's part of the work. Sounds like that's part of the work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Taking up space and in in the bike gang project, for example, yep. take the lane was a really big yeah, cool. like um, uh, you know thing that we would it. say, and the you know um, correlation between women and non-binary people and anyone that's you know not up up upmost mm. in the patriarchy being allowed to take up space in the world, mm. and that's kind of carries through to projects like the Beautiful Game. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. I think that also even though these actions don't seem like a performance, like they're a bike ride or a game or they're Mm. something else, they are very performative. And I think that pre-performance like group anxiety is a really bonding Mm. experience. And that's something we found recently with a separate project that that a group of people have this sense of like, oh, we're all in it together. We're all going to get out and do it together. And um, whether you know the other people or not, it's a great method to bring people together in that Mm. moment. Yeah. And they're definitely, you know, there's definitely something about putting on costumes and mm. um, preparing, as you say, um, that makes, you know, that makes you able to put on another identity almost. Mm. And it's so rare that you get a chance to do that, like, mm. in life. Um, so, yeah, we really love being able to create those moments for people. Mm. Um, and also we, we love just how ridiculous these projects yeah. often end up being oh, because absolutely. we're going to have on the field, like, a, a giant lamington. Um, and <laughs> An edible lamington? Unfortunately well. not ed- edible, but um, there will be a post-game afternoon tea for players featuring edible lamingtons and, <laughs> and rocky roads. Um, so, yeah, like, obviously that's kind of, uh, I guess, surreal and just, yeah. just plain ridiculous. And we, we love to do things like that because, like, it's a way of disrupting totally. the day, which... Yeah, we just take great joy in. Yeah. <laughs> and just using humour to kind of do something that's actually, like, quite serious and important. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And the, like, bringing these opportunities for play into the public realm yeah. feels yeah. very important. Mm. So um, 
down to the important details. How do people participate? Where do they go? What is, tell me the, give me the rundown. So um, people can register to play mm-hmm. um, at snapcatsnapcat.com. Mm-hmm. Um, Google might tell you you might have meant Snapchat. That's incorrect. Mm. You, meant you did not mean Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> One day Google will learn. <laughs> um, and uh, basically um, you can also just turn up on the day. So mm-hmm. we want players to um, be there at New Farm Park by 1.30 mm-hmm. um, to get kitted up, do some warm-ups. Oh, um, yes. Uh, sort of learn how the ball works and and how to work, get in the team spirit and learn yep. how to work together as a team. If you want to watch, which we also encourage, and we encourage people that don't fit into the female or non-binary um, identifying categories, namely men. Um, also welcome to come. We want you to cheer. We're making like big pom poms and um, flags and banners and things. So come on down. Kickoff is at two forty-five. Okay. Fabulous. This is amazing. Can people find out more information about Snapcat on the internet? Absolutely. So, yeah, we have our website, snapcatsnapcat.com, or we are on Facebook as well. Excellent. And Instagram, at Snapcat Snapcat. Hey, <laughs> this is, I like this. I can probably almost remember all of this. <laughs> um, and what about People Artist Place? There's a whole lot of stuff um, coming up this year for you all. Yeah, Tell me so where people can find out about that. We're producing Brisbane City Council's Temporary Art Program 2018. Um, so it's a series of seven activations in public spaces all throughout the year. Um, and you can keep up to date to them by following people.artist.place on Facebook. Uh, Snapcat is number two out of seven. So keep in touch. And there's so many different ways you can participate in each activation. Fabulous. Thank you all so much for joining us in the studio. I look forward to seeing you all on the soccer field. Well, the roving football field. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. On Saturday. See you there. We're going to go out with a track by MIA. This is Boys. And that is the end of Radio Reversal for this week. But uh, stay tuned for Brisbane Line. And we'll be back next week with our super special coverage of the Stolen Wealth Games protest on the Gold Coast. Bye for now.